um, although Pastor Tim will be preaching through the whole chapter, I'll just be reading verses 1 to 14. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 14, it's on page 475 on some of your pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes 7. The good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the cracking, crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts a heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such a question. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, the wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. This is the word of God. Let's think a moment about two possible places where I could invite you to go with me in 2018. Um, The first place, let's see the picture. Take a good look at where I'd love to invite many of you to join me. Ah, I'm looking at nothing. There is something behind me. Thank you. Okay, now... This is to a lobster feast. Now, how many of you would really, really enjoy going with me to a lobster feast? Please raise your hands. Okay? Okay. All right. So maybe some of you who didn't raise your hands would like to go with me to the next place. The Lambert Funeral Home and Crematory. Um, Anybody want to go with me to the crematory and funeral home? Raise your hands. Okay, we have one person. Anybody else? Two, two people? Somebody's just scratching their nose. Okay, we have one person. Well, thank you. We have one person in the congregation who actually believes and accepts and receives the message of the Holy Scriptures in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Listen, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. This is God's way of saying that the funeral home is better than the lobster pot. And some of you 
aren't convinced. Um, I have a confession to make as a pastor. Uh, I've had an opportunity in my ministry to perform a lot of weddings. Um, But I must confess that if I have to choose between weddings, doing a wedding, or performing a funeral, I'll pick the funeral any day. Why is that? Well, it's two reasons. Number one, for a wedding, often the brides are really all nervous about everything going just so. And if it doesn't go just so, then you've ruined the day that she's been thinking about for her entire life. And then you're the bad guy. So, you know, I tread very carefully on weddings because I'm afraid of making mistakes. But the other reason why I prefer funerals rather than weddings is because when people come to a funeral, they're thinking. They're not thinking about their cell phones. They're not thinking about their tests. They're not thinking about where they're going to go for lunch. They're not thinking about anything but the fact that somebody that they love or they know has died. And so for that brief moment of maybe 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes during that time of a funeral, somebody's thinking about the life the way that God wants us to think about our life. And the text tells us here something that goes against the way that we think naturally, goes against everything in the world. The world is not geared towards the funeral home. The world is geared for the lobster pot. I guarantee it. So notice that God wants you to seriously think about your death. There was a great theologian who lived in New England years ago. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Um, One of the Things that I'm looking forward to doing and one of my resolutions for 2018 is to be able to visit Jonathan Edwards' grave. He was definitely one of my heroes um, from church history. And I can't wait to, to learn everything I can about Edwards now that I'm in New England because I've read most of his works. But Jonathan Edwards wrote this thing called his Resolutions. You know, many of you have written your New Year's resolutions. How many of you have written your New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm looking. Nobody has written a New Year's resolution. People, you don't have a lot of time. Tomorrow's New Year's Day. You need to think about it. But when Jonathan Edwards wrote his New Year's, his resolutions, they weren't New Year's resolutions. They were Christian resolutions about how he thought about living his life. And one of the ones that always struck me as I had to read them in seminary was this one. He said, resolved. Never to do anything that I would be ashamed of doing if it were the last hour of my life. Think about that. Resolved never to do anything that I would be ashamed of doing if it were the last hour of my life. And so Jonathan Edwards lived every hour in the thought that maybe this is my last hour. Do you think that those Coptic Christians who went to worship last week were thinking that this might be the last hour of my life? Do you think that those Christians in the South who went to worship recently and a lot of them ended up dead were thinking this could be the last hour of my life? Well, brothers and sisters, this might be the last hour of your life. This might be the last day of your life. And God says from Holy Scripture that it is better for you to seriously think about your death and to think about the day of your death than it is to go to a house of pleasure and to eat yourself full and to enjoy the feast of a century. And then notice something else. My second principle, and if you'd like to follow along, um, all the principles are in the um, in the outline, sermon outline. You can fill in the blanks. You'll probably be able to figure out the words as we go through. But notice, as we go through the text, it says something else. It says this, that if you're a fool, you'll only live for pleasure. Verse four, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. 
while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Fools live only for pleasure. Every now and then you'll go online, you'll read the news and you'll see, oh, there's another one. There's another person who is pledging a fraternity who ended up dead the next day because he drank too much. And that happens probably at least once a year, someplace, somewhere, because people drink themselves silly and fools do that. They live only for pleasure, only for the moment, a fleeting moment that then is gone and leaves a lifetime of regrets. And you know what? The other thing fools do is is they invite you to attend their parties. And this will happen. If you haven't gone to college yet, it will happen when you go to college. The fools will invite you to the drinking party to get absolutely wasted and to live only for the moment of pleasure. But the Bible says that actually it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to live only for pleasure. That's what we see. Verse six, verse five. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this, too, is futility. It's an amazing picture. Crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. Uh, so is the laughter of a fool. Imagine this. You've got this pot here. OK, and this is not the pot that you turn on your gas oven and then that heats up your pot. But it was back in the days where people had to make fires in order to heat up their pots. So then you've got this pot and under it, you've got all these thorn bushes. You put the thorn bushes under it and then you listen to the thorn bushes crackle and crackle and crackle. And the Bible's saying that it's better to listen to someone who comes alongside of you and rebukes you and who points out your sin. It's better to listen to that person than to listen to a person who's singing because as the crackling of the thorn bushes under the pot, so is the laughter of a fool. You know the thing about the crackling of the thorn bushes? It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It's there for a moment. And then if you've ever seen um, a pot being burned or being heated up under thorn bushes, it's gone. It's gone. The crackles there and then it's gone. Then it's gone. Then it's gone. That's the laughter of a fool. It's gone. You have a great time for one night. Then it's gone. And the pleasure of the moment is gone just like that. So the Bible says if you're a fool, someone who doesn't live for God, you will live only for pleasure. But notice the third principle that I have on my outline that comes from the text is that oppression in the world that we live in will drive you crazy. Now, Pastor David just read the text and the version he read said extortion. The New International Version has two different um, versions. And the version that I'm reading from of the New International Version says oppression, oppression or extortion shall drive you crazy. Now, if you haven't realized it by now, from the text, we can see that something is radically wrong with the world. And if there's anything that will drive you crazy, it is the oppression that the scripture talks about in verse seven. For oppression makes a wise man mad. Today, many of you are being made mad. It's hard to read the news each day without going absolutely crazy. If you look out there today, you will see awful things around our world. You'll see that in some countries, women can't go to school. They're not allowed to drive cars. In fact, they can't even show their faces in public. And it drives you absolutely mad. You will see 
that there are lawyers who want to get their own countrymen to live by the laws that they've enacted that are in prison in China, all across China, hundreds of them. And it drives you absolutely stark raving mad because of the oppression that there is in our world. There are journalists today that are discredited for telling the facts in a politically charged and prejudicial environment, and it drives you absolutely mad. There are Christians bombed out of their churches in Egypt, and it drives you absolutely mad. The list goes on and on and on. In Indonesia, there are children playing on top of cobra's nests, because that's where they live. And I saw it with my own eyes when I was there as your missionary, and it drove me absolutely mad and made it almost impossible for me to sleep at night. There's something radically wrong with our world. There is oppression. There is extortion. People demand bribes in all kinds of places. Authorities are messed up. They're corrupt. And if you experience it, it will drive you absolutely crazy. But if you're sensitive to it and you're an empath and you and you have sympathy for the people that you read about, it will drive you just as mad. So what does God want you to do as we go on in the text? Um, the Lord tells us what he wants us to do. God wants you in the midst of all this crazy, messed up world to be patient and not proud. Look at verse eight. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Well, this is very interesting because here we have a contrast between being patient or being proud. And if you're proud, and I can tell whether you're proud in the text, can tell whether you're proud because there's a simple test from the text. And the text is, if you're proud, you will get angry easily. At others, you'll get personally offended. You'll blow up. And, you know, I learned this about myself when I was a teacher. Um, my first year of teaching, I was 23 years old. I just graduated from from college and I was back in my hometown in Titusville, Florida. If you don't know where that is, then uh, get a map. It's like this small little place in the middle of nowhere in Titusville, Florida. I'm back. I got a job two days before school started uh, as a choral and band teacher in my hometown. So none of the teachers in the school knew that they had a chorus teacher. In fact, they thought that they were going to have a substitute for the first six weeks. So they didn't have any um, any desks or any chairs in the choral room. So I walk in um, and I, I walk in to the teacher's lounge and, and the teachers look at me and they say, excuse me, you know, students aren't supposed to be in here for another, in, in the class, in the school room for another 20 minutes. And I'm like, I'm the new course teacher. And they're like, no, you're not. So one of the teachers grabbed my hand and escorted me out of the room and, and out of the building because she thought I looked too young to be a teacher. So then I go into my classroom. The kids walk in. There's no uh, there's no chairs. They start break dancing. Um, and I walk in and I'm like trying to get everybody to stop. And they're like, dude, who are you? And I'm like, I'm the teacher. And they're like, ah! so I ended up pressing the button to get the principal to come down three times during the first first class. And so in the middle of all of that, I got angry many times because the little darlings wouldn't do what I asked them to do. And I realized something. I realized that I was proud. I realized I didn't love them. I realized that I thought I was better than them. And I learned during that very, very difficult year of my life that whenever I'm proud, I become angry. Parents, you're like that. It's one thing to discipline another, your, your child. It's another thing to get angry 
at your child. And if there's anything that's shown me my sin more than anything, it's the fact that I get angry at the times where I ought to be patient. The Bible says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this is something that if we live by, it will greatly help our year. But notice as we go on, there's a fifth principle. And that fifth principle comes from verse 10. And also verse 11. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So what God is telling us is is that if you're wise, you will not question God's timing and you will preserve your own life. Now, this is an interesting principle because we, we often do it all the time. Your life's going along. It's pretty good. And then all of a sudden something happens And then you ask yourself and you say, why is it bad now? And why is it that before was better than right now? Why is it that the former days were better than these today? Well, God says, if you think that way, then that's unwise. So why is it unwise? Well, the first reason why it's unwise is because if you think that way and wonder why is now worse than before, then the answer to that question is, is that you don't realize that God is in control. If you're upset about that, then you're clueless and you scratch your head and you say, why? Whenever somebody says why, it's usually because they're not accepting the fact that God is in control. So when you question God, you're not submitting to God. So when you question his providence and question what he's allowed in your life, then you're acting not from wisdom. But yet people do it. Um, what we need to do is we need to embrace faith like Job did in the Old Testament. Job was this man who was a righteous man. Everything was going for him. He had kids. He had possessions. He had all these animals. They're really cool. Can't imagine how many animals he really had. And then everything goes to pot. And there comes a day where he loses, loses everything. The Bible says there was a man. His name was Job. There was a day, an evil day. And then it tells us how he lost his family, how he lost his money, how he lost his animals. Then he loses his health. And his wife comes to him and says, you know what? You ought to curse God. Curse God and die. And you know what Job responds in the midst of the people who come to him and tell him how he ought to be responding when the day right now is much worse than what the former days were? Here's what Job says, and here's what faith is for all of us. He says in Job chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And Job asks that question that we have to ask ourselves today. Are you only looking for good from God? Or can you also accept it when something bad happens? You see, if you can accept that God gives to us not only good, but sometimes adversity, you'll realize that there's a great big promise that's written all over your lives. And that promise comes from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, For those who love the Lord, for those who are the called according to his purpose. 
that if you understand the gospel, if you understand faith, if you understand God's sovereignty in a world where something is radically wrong with the world, then you know that sometimes there will be goodness and your life will go well and you will have prosperity and sometimes you will experience adversity. But in spite of the prosperity... And even in the midst of adversity, you will know that God is working everything together for your good. How is such a thing possible? The Bible's not saying that bad is good. A lot of people misunderstand that. Listen to what I just said. Look up from your cell phones. All of you in the front row, look up from your cell phones. I'm not saying that that the Bible says that bad is good. That's not what it's saying. It says that there is good and there is bad. But in the midst of it all, God is causing all things to work together for good because he's a gracious God and he's a powerful God and he's a sovereign God and God has planned in some way that blows our mind to even in the midst of evil manifest his great love, his great purpose, his great amazing grace so that we can be made better even when everything around us is horrible and bad. In the midst of adversity, you either get bitter like so many of you do, or you get better like God wants you to do. And if you understand Romans 8:28 is the great promise that's written over your life, you'll realize that right in the middle of it is our savior. The one who not in the midst of prosperity, but in the midst of adversity, accepted the providence and the sovereignty of God to die in our place. And if God can take the greatest act of injustice that ever happened in human history and turn it into the means through which he blesses you and me and gives us forgiveness, then that is an amazing God. And you should not question and say, why are the former days better than the days that I'm experiencing at this moment? Well, God doesn't want you to question his timing and he wants you to live by a wisdom that will preserve your own life. There's a lot of wisdom out there that will help preserve your own life. Wisdom like don't drink and drive. Wisdom like don't eat too much. You know, some of you are always making comments about how fat the pastor is. Even somebody in the congregation posted it online and on Facebook and through through Messenger about how amazingly they didn't use amazingly. They used a very naughty word that I'm not going to say, but how amazingly fat the pastor is. Okay, well, the Bible, not the Bible, but wisdom says don't eat too much, because if you do, you're going to die early. Well, okay, I've heard you. That was probably no truer words have ever been spoken than the person who posted on Facebook how fat the pastor is. But I'm doing something about it. So I'm trying to listen to wisdom in in my life. But wait a minute. Don't think that you can't give me chocolate. Tomorrow's my birthday. If, If you bought chocolate, I will accept it. I will eat it. I will thank you. I will thank the Lord. And then I'll go on my diet two days later. But but the point is, is that there's wisdom in the in the Bible and in in the world that preserves our life. Don't get into fights. Some people are very easy to get into a fight. I learned very, very early in life because I was smaller than everybody in my class that I had to be the diplomat. I had to learn how to talk myself out of a fight because I could never win the fight. Okay, well, that's wisdom. Don't get into the fight. Here's wisdom. Don't have sex with multiple people, because if you do, you might end up getting a disease. That's wisdom. And so wisdom actually works in our lives to preserve our own lives. So when you listen to wisdom, it actually extends your life. If you read the statistics, they're rather shocking. Um, The lifespan of an average male homosexual is 41 years old. The lifespan of an average married heterosexual is 73.6 years. Look at the difference. 
Why is that? Because sin leads to death and obedience leads to blessing and longer life as a general principle. That doesn't mean that people won't die early if they're loving the Lord. It simply means that as a general principle, wisdom preserves the life of those who possess it. And notice um, the next principle, principle number six that comes from our text, that God will bring days of prosperity and adversity to you. Consider the work of God, verse 13, for who is able to straighten what he's bent in the day of prosperity? Be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Well, this text is telling us that God will bring to us both days of prosperity and days of adversity. And that's just something we have to deal with. I find so many people become Christians because they think that God promises them a rose garden. Um, But actually, the song that we should be singing is, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. You guys are too young to know that song, but that was a song that came from my my youth. Um, God doesn't promise us a rose garden. He promises us both days of prosperity and adversity. Why? Because we live in a world where something is terribly wrong with the world. That's reality. We can't change it. We live in a world of sin and of death and we can't escape it. So I run into people all the time who think, okay, if I if I trust in Christ and God's going to heal me, Jesus is going to heal me. Everything's going to go well with me. I'm just going to be blessed. You know, it's like the the Joel Osteen heresy, your best life now. And you constantly live in the now. And so the only thing you ever have is your best life. No, Joel, unfortunately, some days will be your worst life ever. Because of a life of sin and a world of sin and death. And you have to face it. If your Christianity today was simply something that you came to, you decided to believe because of all the goodness, then you've not understood Christianity. Jesus says, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you become a Christian, Paul says in Philippians 1, um, in the end of Philippians 1, he says, for unto you, it has been graciously given as a gift, not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Is that your Christianity? If it isn't, then what you're what you're worshiping is an idolatrous religion. And a lot of Christians who come come to Christ from a Buddhist background, especially in my experience in Taiwan and China, do this. They exchange the Buddha for Jesus. They stop going to the temple and buy buying. And instead, they trust the Christ who's going to heal them and make their life all the better. And you know what they've done? They've displaced idolatry. They've taken the Buddhist idol and they've thrown it off their shelf. And instead, they now have Jesus who's stronger. Is that your faith today, brothers and sisters, that everything's going to be well? If so, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. And you need to pay attention to what God is saying to you today. And notice that there's something else from the passage. My seventh principle, um, nine point sermon in 25 minutes. I think I'm going to do it. Um, Principle number seven. And after that, you can all pie pie show. Um, Sometimes the good die young and the wicked live long. Now, this principle 
really, really bothers me. Um, Verse 17. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Okay, now this is very interesting um, because through this through this passage, from even from verse 15 on, where he says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his wickedness. He's telling us that sometimes the people who are wicked live longer than the people who are righteous. That seems like it goes against my earlier principle that wisdom will lead to a longer life. But actually, in a world like we live in, where things are horribly messed up, both are true. Wisdom will extend your life, but sometimes incredibly righteous people die early and incredibly wicked people live on and on and on. We have this idea in our brains of karma. You know, if I do good, then good will come to me. If I do bad, then bad will come to me. This principle is saying karma doesn't exist in the real world because sometimes you might do well and you find out instead that you die young Because you tried to be righteous. I've known Christians in China who died young because they tried to be righteous. And then I've known other people and known of other people as I've studied history who um, lived and had long lives. And you scratch your head. Okay, let's think about someone from a Chinese history perspective. Shang Kai-shek. Anybody know who Shang Kai-shek is? Zhang Jieshi. Anybody know? Anybody know? Shang Kai-shek. Okay, who's Shang Kai-shek? Um, okay, he, <clears throat> he was the president of China, of the Republic of China. And then when Shang Kai-shek left and lost the Civil War um, it, in World War II, he then came to Taiwan and set up the Republic of China on Taiwan. So Chiang Kai-shek is, is hailed as a leader by, by many people. There's a big memorial uh, um, for him in Taipei City. They used to have the airport named after him. And, and he, he's a person who um, is a very prominent historical figure. Uh, anybody know how old he was when he died? History lesson time. Anybody know how old? Um, how? Ah, 80-something. Absolutely right. 87 years old. He died on April 5th, 1975. And, you know, some people think he was a good ruler, but actually he was one of those people who lived to be an old, to an old age, but yet did all kinds of awful things. Taiwan, till this day, has not gotten over what happened in 1947 in February, on the 27th of February and the 28th of February, in what's known as the 228 incident, where Chiang Kai-shek was responsible for ordering the death of 28,000 people. Lawyers, doctors, pastors, people who he was afraid were going to cause a ruckus in society. And Taiwan, till this day, has never fully healed from it. But at least they're talking about it. Well, Chiang Kai-shek didn't just kill Taiwanese, he killed his own people. I spent 
two trips this year before I moved here in Hunan province, researching something that I guarantee maybe only three people in the room know what happened. Um, in World War II, the Japanese army killed 330,000 people in a two-week period in 1937 in the city of Nanjing, in what we know as the Rape of Nanjing. A terrible atrocity that Japan hasn't admitted till today, which is why there's, there's tension between China and Japan. But you know what? In 1938, in June of 1938, the Japanese army is trying to catch up with Chiang Kai-shek. At, at that point, and his army, and the Nationalist Army, and they're in Hunan province. And so Chiang Kai-shek gets an idea in his mind. He's like, I'm going to blow up the dikes of the Yellow River, and if I do, I'll keep the Japanese army from catching up with me. So he did. He blew up the dikes of the Yellow River, and 890,000 people, three times as many as died in the rape of Nanjing, died in the flood, and then there was eight years of famine that resulted from the flooding of Hunan and Anhui in one of the other provinces, in what has been termed is the greatest example of environmental terrorism in world history. And Chiang Kai-shek was behind that. And I'm writing a book on it called The Forgotten Tsunami. And so my point is, is, is the scripture says that there's people like Chiang Kai-shek who lived to be 87. And then there's people like Benigno Aquino, who was the rule, who was the um, one of the political leaders in the Philippines, who at the age of 51 years old, after being um, in a sense, exiled by the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, decides he's going to be able to go back to try and lead his political party in the Philippines. And this happens in 1983. He goes back after medical treatment in the United States. He comes back to the Philippines and he's shot right as he gets off the plane. And a great ruler, a moral man, a Christian man who wanted to bring an anti-corruption message to the Philippines dies like that. This is what the text of Scripture is saying. Sometimes the good die young and the wicked live long. And we don't have to go to political history to find an example of that. We can look at a ruler who died when he was 33 years old. A man who didn't rule a country, but who ruled a kingdom nevertheless. A man who was good, completely righteous, the son of God himself. And yet he dies young. And so the question that flows from the text, the, te the question that jumps out at us from Scripture today is why? And the answer is this. So that we might be forgiven. So that we might experience God's grace. You know, my eighth principle, and I'm going to stop with the eighth principle. It's that you have sinned against God the way that others have sinned against you. And that's what verse 20 tells us, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That's where we all are, brothers and sisters, in a world that's gone crazy. We're part of the problem. We've sinned against God. And the Bible says that there's no one who's lived a perfect, righteous life. And you need to consider that you've often done the very same thing that you get upset at someone else. For doing. And that's what the text of Scripture says our lives are like. There's contradiction in the life of the believer. We want to do good, but sometimes we don't do good. And because of that, all of us stand as sinners, unrighteous, in the sight of a God who's not only holy and who will punish sin, but a God who's forgiving and loving and gracious, who welcomes us to enjoy the forgiveness that He's given to us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, as you try and make sense, of your meaningless life 
and of a life where something's incredibly wrong with the world. The only way you can understand it, the only way you can deal with it, the only way you can accept it is if you see how Jesus Christ is right in the middle of it. And he loves you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you understand what's wrong with this world more than anyone else. And you know it's sin 